this week we're doing something a little different, a preview teaser for new shows coming up uh, under the Lost in the Movies umbrella, but they're going to have their own separate feed. So two of these you're familiar with if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, because I've been sprinkling in episodes of these uh, podcasts uh, as Lost in the Movies episodes, but now they're going to branch out. So in October... Lost in Twin Peaks will begin. This is a series that I haven't shared much of here, although I did put up a preview in, I think, February of some of the stuff going on on my Patreon with this series. It's an episode guide to Twin Peaks in which I go through the whole series super in-depth uh, to the point where it's actually going to be a daily show because there's so much material I can divide it up into uh, basically weekly installments of six or seven episodes that cover different aspects of the show. And then I'm also going to begin putting up monthly episodes of Twin Peaks Cinema on its own feed in October, and monthly episodes of Left of the Movies, a political film podcast. So let's go into each of those. I'll discuss what they entail, and then we'll play a, a preview of each one, a good solid clip about maybe four to six minutes of uh, at least of Lost in Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks Cinema. The story with Left of the Movies is a little different, as I'll explain when we get there. But let's start with Lost in Twin Peaks. So the format for this show is that each episode will kind of dive into a different aspect of an episode, and then it'll begin again the next week, going chronologically through the whole series. It will be spoiler-free for upcoming episodes, so you can listen to this if you're a new viewer. It may be a bit... Um, in depth for that. Like I, I, I'm actually curious to see if people who are watching the series for the first time want to do this much of a deep dive. Um, uh, veterans I know seem to enjoy this process a lot, but, um, depends if, you know, you're first getting your feet wet, how much context do you really want? Um, not to discard it. I would love people who are thinking about watching Twin Peaks to, uh, maybe watch and listen along and, uh, see if it makes sense to them that way. So the format will be the first episodes. They're going to come out on Saturdays just because, um, that's when they're going to begin, kick off each week, uh, because that's when I'm going to be putting a roundup up on my site of uh, what's to come for each episode uh, with illustrations and actually breaking down some of like the statistics and stuff that I discussed, the different topics. So you get sort of a visual companion to the episode itself each Saturday. Plus, uh, coming up in the spring and summer of next year, uh, Saturdays are going to be anniversaries of uh, the season three, the fifth anniversaries next summer will fall on Saturdays. So it's a good time to kick off the podcast on those episodes. And I think some of the um, air dates from like 1990 might be on Saturdays too. Either way, because it's because the podcasts on each episode are going to run all week. It'll coincide with anniversaries of of episodes and events of episodes and so forth. So that, that'll be just sort of fun benchmarks as we go. So the first episode going up on a Saturday will probably start with the three questions that I ask in every episode and answer in different ways, depending what the episode gives us, which is, uh, what is Twin Peaks? Who is Agent Cooper? And who is Laura Palmer? I'll also provide production context, the writer and director of the episode, what went on behind the scenes and so forth. Then I will have a mystery episode where I discuss the big question on the show, which is who killed Laura Palmer? at least for the first, uh, for, for a good chunk of the series, let's say. And uh, I, I kind of break down different clues that we're given and look at the big picture that it's giving us 
and and treat that as kind of its own isolated uh, investigation. The next episode after that will be storylines of a given episode, where I break down every subplot and also the main Laura storylines. Basically, it's a way to discuss scenes in the episode individually and dig into little details and observations about them, but organizing them rather than just moving through the episode, as podcasts often do, I thought it would be refreshing to organize them by the subplot. So talk about, say, all of the Audrey stuff, and then move along to talk about, uh, say, Nadine and Ed, and I won't get too much into the characters. I'll let you experience it as you go if you're watching it for the first time. The next episode of the week, which would probably be on a Tuesday at this point, is uh, the media and fan reaction. So I've gathered a lot of quotes uh, over the years, particularly early on, of media responses from 1990 and also fans on an early internet uh, message board in the early 90s and fans later recalling their first encounters. Sometimes this section will be shorter than others. Some episodes inspired more discussion than others. Um, So episode lengths will be variable, but... Uh, probably mostly between 15 to 45 minutes, kind of around the same length that these Lost in the Movies episodes usually are. Next up will be historical context. This is something that was really interesting for me. This gets very tangential to Twin Peaks. I just talk about what was going on in the world at the time. I look through Time Magazine articles um, and issues from that week and kind of parse the zeitgeist. This was the end of the Cold War. The Gulf War began and was in full throttle during Twin Peaks. So there's a lot of stuff to dig into here. And again, this is more for people who are just have an interest in history and politics and things like that, uh, or just are curious about the world that Twin Peaks came out into. Because sometimes there are Twin Peaks connections to draw, but a lot of times it's just, here's what was going on and discussing it for 15, 20 minutes or so. Then there will be an archive episode where I go through my previous pieces on uh, on, a, on Twin Peaks and uh, talk about you know what uh, what what I've said before in video form, podcast form, or uh, in essays that I'll read quotes from. So just kind of giving a survey because there's so much work I've done before these podcasts on the show. It'd be kind of a shame to. Just uh, just have uh, only the new material <laughs> present. And then finally, the last episode of the week, I guess on a Friday probably, if I'm going to start these on Saturday, will be statistics. This is just sort of like a nerdy deep dive into characters, the rankings as they go along. I kept track of like screen time for a character series I did years ago. So I have all these kind of records of this. So I thought this would be an interesting way to put this to use. Look at which characters are becoming like getting more screen time as the show goes along, who's been seen a lot, who hasn't. Things like coffee, pie, and donuts, just racking up all of the uh, different uh, uses of those Twin Peaks motifs in a given episode, and uh, locations that are featured, which locations haven't been seen for a while, just stuff like that, kind of digging into the weeds of it. And then it'll all begin again on on a Saturday. So here's a clip from the pilot episode, which will be coming up the first week of October. This will kick off the Lost in Twin Peaks series. I hope to see at least some of you there. Twin Peaks came about when somebody suggested to Lynch and Frost that they write something like a Peyton Place meets Blue Velvet. You know, this was the time of the nighttime soap, Dallas and Dynasty um, on at prime time, and they were hugely popular shows. So this was a genre that they figured maybe they could slot these guys in after their first few projects just hadn't worked out. Uh, and Lynch still hadn't directed anything since Blue Velvet either, so they were just sort of sitting around. He had never worked in TV before. Frost obviously was 
somewhat experienced in TV, certainly went through the boot camp of, of being a story editor on Hill Street Blues for several years. So he, he knew how that sausage was made, pretty much. They went back and they watched Peyton plays. I think they watched the film, not the series, the original 1950s film. And that's a uh, story. It was a novel, then a movie, then a, then a uh, kind of a soap opera about a small New England town and all of the melodrama happening there between the characters, again, beneath the surface. So sort of a less crazy blue velvet. And they did not like it, actually. They, they didn't think the show worked, but I think that the template sort of had an impact on them, and this was the sort of show that they would tell with, with some big twists in it. They came up with the idea of Twin Peaks, apparently at Dupar's, which is a restaurant, a diner, I believe, in the L.A. area, uh, in Studio City. So I'd love to make a pilgrimage there someday. The next time I'm in LA, go out there and look at the place where Twin Peaks was born in this sort of, you know, desert valley uh, area so far from the world that it depicts on screen. Lynch and Frost disagree about the origin of the idea, or at least they place different emphasis on different parts of the creative process. To Frost, the town came first. The whole geography of it, they laid out its ecosystem, who the people were, what their relationships were, this idea of an intricate society, a small town where all this drama was going on, and the murder mystery would develop as a great introduction to the characters and the schemes unfolding beneath the surface. So he saw it as a way into this world, and the point was the world. But to Lynch, the dead girl came first, the mysterious person or object that triggered all of the other associations and emotional resonance. Again, we have the goddess scenario. Is this an individual icon uh, that has a convenient centerpiece for a sprawling social portrait about power? Or is the worldly intrigue a backdrop for the portrait of a beautiful, troubled human soul? Ironically, though, even if it's Lynch who was interested in the Laura angle as its own thing, it's probably Frost who suggested the murdered young woman as a plot device. This was based on two inspirations, the murder of Hazel Drew in upstate New York around the turn of the century. Uh, That's something that's been covered a great deal by Mark Givens and David Bushman, two writers who have been are huge Twin Peaks fans, and they've been investigating this original case and coming to their own conclusions. And also, influent, this was influenced by the death of one of Frost's peers when he was a young, uh, I think a child or early adolescent growing up. Uh, one of his friend's uh, sister died, and I'm not sure how she died, but the anecdote is talked about on a Dear Meadow Radio interview, which I'll link in the show notes, uh, conducted by Mark Givens, who is, you know, the one that I just said was reporting on the Hazel Drew story. Anyways, he introduced, he interviews Frost, and Frost talks about how he saw the brother grieving, the whole town shocked by this sudden unexpected death, and it's so clear to see that in this episode as well. So Lynch and Frost pitched this idea to ABC. Lynch emphasized more the atmosphere than the narrative, uh, talking about trees blowing in the wind, and according to Frost, all of the executives just kind of leaned forward in their chairs and they wouldn't tell them anything more about it unless they commissioned it. But right around this time, the writer's strike happened in Hollywood. It lasted from March to August of 1988, and this was the longest writer's strike in history. So in the strike, they were fighting for residuals for hour-long shows, expanded creative rights for uh, to choose actors and directors, and also producers on their end wanted to cut costs elsewhere to make up for this. So the screen, the 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 writers' uh, guild filed an antitrust suit accusing 18 studios and networks of mounting an illegal boycott. So there was a lot of drama going on at this time with Lynch and Frost, I believe both members of the guild, uh, trying not to participate in any projects so that they would not, you know, violate that solidarity. Um, 
and eventually it was settled. It seems like the studios kind of got more out of it than uh, than the writers, although the writers were able to win international rights uh, to residual. So all of this, in a way, would play out uh, to an extent in Twin Peaks. Uh, I'm not sure if it would have been quite as possible without the w- without the uh, results of the strike, but they had full ownership of the series, uh, Lynch Frost Productions. Uh, ABC distributed it, but it was really run by Lynch and Frost personally. Uh, I'm probably exaggerating somewhat the relationship that has to the strike. It may have more to do with Lynch's creative independence at this point, to be fair, but didn't hurt. So after the strike was over, ABC is looking for content. They call them back. It's now late summer. The The new season of television is about to begin. Shows have been delayed. And ABC is in third place among the networks. They need to make a bold move. And bringing David Lynch to television is a pretty bold move. Lynch and Frost, Frost uh, didn't write the pilot until the strike was already over. So during all that time, they'd been working on other things. And they were brought back to Twin Peaks because they were like, hey, remember that idea about the, the trees blowing in the wind and the, the dead girl up can you do something more with that? And so they did something more with that. They wrote their script. Next up is Twin Peaks Cinema. This is the monthly series. Uh, This is a lot of fun for me. I watch different movies and I discuss them both, you know, in themselves, but also relating them to Twin Peaks. Uh, Episodes, the film Firewalk With Me, other aspects of the series. And it's interesting how Twin Peaks has so many facets. You can really apply so many different types of films to uh to, to that universe and see how it how it relates so i've covered it for you know this has been going on my patron podcast for over two years now i've covered everything from our town to back to the future part two to uh, robert altman's three women the big sleep uh fire in the sky the sci-fi alien abduction film was one of the first ones i covered so i'm gonna have fun putting these together as a public podcast now. And one thing I am going to do for at least the first year or so is have loose groupings of three episodes. So for three months, there'll be sort of a theme and then there'll be another theme and so forth. Like at one point, it'll be noir films and and so forth. And the first up is going to be a theme I call What's in a Name? These are three classic films that are probably among the films that people relate the most to Twin Peaks uh, because of a lot of thematic connections but also just because uh, they have characters named, characters in Twin Peaks are named after characters in these movies. And uh, I'll save some of them, uh, you know, I'll let some of them be a surprise for November and December, but I'll tell you what's coming up in October, and we'll play a clip here. Uh, that clip is, uh, that, that film is Laura, which obviously gave one of the main characters in Twin Peaks, the murder victim, her name and shares a lot of plot similarities as well. So this is a, f- a film from 1944. It's a noir film about a woman who has been murdered, and the detective begins to kind of fall in love with her, even though she's dead at, while investigating the, the murder. And uh, I'll, I'll play a, a clip here. Before I do that, I'll just mention uh, when I had Twin Peaks Cinema previously on this podcast, uh, sprinkling episodes in every few months, it's been exclusively focused on films by creators of Twin Peaks, either David, uh, well, actually not David Lynch yet, but Mark Frost or the episode directors or one of the writers, uh, films that they made and relating their other work to Twin Peaks, which has been very interesting to do. But uh, from this point on, for the most part, I'm going to be focusing on 
classic films or more recent films, not by people connected to Twin Peaks, uh, just seeing films that influenced Twin Peaks or that were influenced by Twin Peaks or just resemble it in some way. So here's what I said about uh, Laura in part. Of course, the full episode will be a longer exploration of this. And I suppose I should note in this teaser that there will be spoilers for both Laura and Twin Peaks in this uh, discussion, even in this sample that I'm providing, because you kind of have to get into the secrets and mysteries of both films to discuss them. So check in the show notes and skip ahead to the left of the movie's preview if you don't want to hear uh, giveaway uh, plot details for Laura or Twin Peaks yet. But do go watch both so you can listen to this later. The Waldo Lidecker character is interesting in that his name, Waldo, is taken for the bird, and the last name, Lidecker, is taken for the veterinarian uh, in Twin Peaks, so the minor bird that witnessed Laura's death and, uh, and you know, that veterinarian. But who does he actually correspond to in Twin Peaks, if anyone? I think initially his character is the most like Jacoby. I should say initially in Laura and also initially in Twin Peaks. First of all... We have him asking the detective, oh, mind if I go with you? Murder is my favorite crime, which is very similar to how Jacoby approaches Cooper and Harry in the pilot and is kind of totally cavalier about Laura dying. Oh, I, I, can I go along with you? I'd, I'd like to go to the, uh, to the autopsy. And they're looking like, no, that's really not appropriate and weirded out that he even wants to go. And he's got this decadent lifestyle in, in a certain way. He doesn't have the hippie affectations that Jacoby has. Far from it, he's a very high-class esthete. But they have a similar apartness from the rest of human society in a way that makes them a little off-putting or curious to people. Also, I think, as we find out as the first few episodes go along, we have Jacoby going to Laura's grave in the cemetery and confessing to Cooper that he had ceased to care about his patients. He was her psychiatrist, but Laura reawakened something in him and made him want to be a better person. And Waldo says almost an identical thing about his Laura. She thought that he was this caring, compassionate person, and he wanted to become more like that, even though he's this egotistical maniac from the moment we see him. Uh, in the movie. Also, though, he's a little bit like Ben Horn. The affectations are there. Ben has this flowery way of speaking at times, and he's this very wealthy character who is nonetheless touched by this vivacious girl and becomes this weird mix of protector and, and lover. And, and in Laura, the film, it's even more ambiguous because Waldo is frequently read as being a gay character. Uh, yet he's in some sense in love with Laura, even if it's just as a Pygmalion that he's created, an extension of his own egotism, or if there's just some tenderness there that he sees. He calls her the best part of him. He and his relationship to Laura reminded me a little of Ben Horn, particularly as it went along. And in my uh, video essays for Journey Through Twin Peaks, where I talk about the whole series, I compare it to Laura at certain points. And one point I do that is right before the killer's reveal in Twin Peaks, when I look at Ben Horn as a possible a suspect, and I see how easily it could have played out that way, and how it would have felt maybe a little obvious, but also kind of right. And it would have played back into the Laura influence, where you have this powerful older man in the community taking Laura, their own various Laras, and trying to control them and killing them out of some protective concern. Now, ultimately, that is the dynamic that plays out, but it's with Leland, Laura's father, and he ends up being the Waldo character 
in Twin Peaks. And I, I think there are some strong similarities there because, again, you have this very possessive attitude toward, in, in this case, his own daughter, which makes explicit the weird paternalistic attitude that Waldo takes towards Lara in the film, where he's like her mentor, and yet he also is extremely jealous of every young man that she takes an interest in and tries to ruin them. He writes a column about one of them. He tries to set up uh, Shelby, the, the Vincent Price character, as a, as a murderer. You see this vindictiveness that's unbecoming of a of a mentor figure, a paternal figure who's supposed to help this character along, but then let them live their own life and have this relationship with other men. And and so with Leland, you have that father character way overstepping his role, but in a way that reflects how that sometimes does play out in society. This oh, this overprotective father theme, where it's like, oh, you know, anybody who's interested in you, I'll I'll take care of them or whatever. Uh, taken to its extreme in that case. Now, another way that Twin Peaks and Laura are similar beyond just the character of Laura is the fact that everyone seems to be having affairs and double-crossing each other, particularly with the aunt character and the Judith Anderson character is the aunt of Laura. So I guess she has a wealthy aunt, even though uh, she seems like a little bit of an outsider to society that Waldo has to train. So that's an interesting contradiction there. And her aunt is in love with the Vincent Price character, with Shelby, and actually even says at one point that she would consider murdering Laura. <laughs> you know, she's like, well, the thought crossed my mind, basically. She reminds me quite a bit of Catherine, that sort of imperious, wealthy older woman kind of stereotype that played out in a lot of soaps at the time of Twin Peaks as well. Interestingly, the character who paints Laura's portrait is called, uh, is named Jacoby, Jacoby as they call him. That seems like it probably is not a coincidence. They say Jacoby was in love with her when he painted the portrait. So, and, and later we see him kind of leaving her apartment after a rendezvous. And finally, left of the movies, this is going to be the first one that I kick off with a week or two into October. And this is a little bit of a different situation in that pretty much Almost, well, almost all of these episodes are going to be newly recorded for the podcast. I'm not bringing things in from my Patreon podcast that I've recorded in the past, as I am with Twin Peaks Cinema or Lost in Twin Peaks. So I don't have a clip yet, because I haven't recorded it yet, of October's episode. It's going to be on the Battle for Chile, a really amazing documentary from the 70s about the coup that happened there, but also the society that was being built before that coup struck it down. And I'm hoping also, if I can find it, I watched it in the past, if it's still online, I'll watch it again, a film called Chile Obstinate Memory, which is the director Patricio Guzman's follow-up to Battle of Chile, visiting many of the people he interviewed after the dictatorship has ended, but so many of their dreams were crushed and their youth lost under the Pinochet dictatorship. So this is a film with a lot, not just a historical interest, but a lot of applications to the present as well. And uh, I have discussed the situation in that country before when I was recommending a podcast. And I'll recommend that podcast again. It's from a revolutionary left radio is the name of the podcast. And I'll, I'll have that episode in the show notes along with all the other links to my own work and so forth. But th this discusses the context that the movie depicts in a documentary form. So let this be kind of an intro to you if you're not that familiar with the situation and uh, you're thinking about watching this documentary and listening to that podcast. I believe it's all available online. I'll, I'll link it below if it, if it still is. 
So here's uh, what I said about Salvador Allende and the Chilean revolution that was eventually nipped in the bud and uh, the podcast that I thought did a good job covering this. One that I wanted to recommend this week was Chilean Coup of 1973, Salvador Allende, Augusto Pinochet, and the CIA from May 21st on Revolutionary Left Radio. And that was with the guest Alex Avina. I'm always fascinated to hear or see anything about Chile. I think it's one of the most unique situations of the past century in terms of revolutions and political turmoil in a country where you have a country that had been a pretty functioning representative democracy for many, many years in a region that was not that stable. And you had an elected leader who was a socialist and a pretty revolutionary radical socialist, not just kind of a mild reformist social democrat, but somebody who actually did want to see society transformed into something that was more run by the workers. And actually the workers of the country were pretty far ahead of him and he got kind of frustrated sometimes because they were moving so fast and taking over factories and stuff like that. Now at the same time, Salvador Allende, this president, also wanted to respect the constitution, the democratic processes, the civic norms of the society. So he tried to function within that and it terrified the US and it terrified the Chilean elite. And what eventually happened was they tried every tactic in the book. They tried boycotts, delegitimize him. They tried claims of political oppression and trying to sort of play the civic protester martyrs, which is a popular tactic today. And they then tried economic sabotage, where they withheld goods. They, uh, Nixon and Kissinger actually were very supportive of this strategy and tried to use the IMF and other institutions, international economic institutions to, in Nixon's words, make the economy scream. And none of it worked. Allende remained popular. It was There were close elections, but he kept winning them, and the public remained behind him. The right even tried to sort of form, you know, these uh, unions that would oppose Allende and go on strike and almost try to co-opt the leftist rhetoric against him, and, and just... None of it worked. It was all transparent. It was obvious who was doing this, why they were doing it. And people supported Allende strongly. And there was just a huge upsurge of political activity in the country where people were assembling. They were trying new and innovative approaches to things and trying to collectivize themselves. Like it was a very grassroots revolution to the point where, like I said, the leadership actually got kind of skittish and scared at certain points. Like the people are getting too far ahead of of what we want to do. And so it's just a fascinating development. And I've even heard libertarians talk about it where they don't obviously, you know, they don't get the economic uh, aspect of it where where they're taking over the factories and where uh, it's it's taking over land and things like that. But they still are appreciating the democratic process of it and the freewheeling discussions that would emerge just the political culture that was so alive and vibrant at this time. And then what happened is finally the military, just after trying everything else and failing to convince people that Allende wasn't wasn't the right leader, the right just threw in the towel and said, okay, screw it, let's let's stop pretending, let's just do this by force. And the military took over the country, led by Pinochet, and Allende killed himself as the uh, presidential palace was under siege left a final broadcast, which the host of this show reads on the air. And 
And then the country was just plunged into brutal repression and violence for the next 15 years, and especially the next five or so, totally backed by the U.S. with economists trained by Milton Friedman going down there and privatizing their economy, so actually pairing the dictatorial repression with the complete destruction of any safety net or any programs for the people there and privatizing everything. It was just a really brutal crackdown. And I think one thing that makes it interesting is it's the most transparent example of what the right does and what the right thinks and what that means in terms of people's lives. Like this is kind of the gold standard of how the right wing responds to a populist democratic movement. And I think it's always useful to keep that in mind uh, going forward in this country as the left becomes more popular and uh, there becomes more of a resistance to kind of elite rule as it's unfolded in the U.S. for really in one way or another for most of our history, but, but especially in the past 30 or 40 years. And so this program talks a lot about that. It goes into much more detail and talks about Allende himself, who was a fascinating figure. He was a doctor who uh, entered politics as a young man and kept running for president and finally won when he was in his 60s, when all of this happened. So I I would definitely recommend that podcast highly. And uh, really anything you can get your hands on about Chile, particularly the film The Battle of Chile, which came out in the late 70s and is a really up-close look at the country as it dissolved from 1971 to 1973 when the coup happened. So when you hear the the podcast in October, it'll be all new material. Uh, As I said, that was not an excerpt from Left of the Movies, just uh, from a discussion of the same topic. And I also am planning on covering some films that don't have politics front and center necessarily. I think it can be interesting, just as it's interesting to analyze you know, Twin Peaks connections in a movie that doesn't set out to be related to Twin Peaks. Sometimes movies have interesting political facets, whether or not the filmmakers intended them. Uh, I have one in mind for November that I'm going to try to see how it goes and see if it applies well to this approach. And uh, But the first, obviously, Battle for Chile is very much a politics-first film. And uh, like I said, it'll probably come with a bonus film as a part of the discussion as well, if I can manage to watch that again. I watched it uh, several years ago when I saw Battle of Chile for the first time. And even Battle of Chile itself, it's a very long, it's almost like a series, like it's many hours long. There's, it was split into different films over the seventies that were released and, and uh, just a lot to, a lot to discuss there. So those are the three new podcasts coming your way. And I hope you enjoyed these samples and I hope you are uh, interested in checking them out on their own now that they will be under that big umbrella. And I guess I'll end with a preview for next week as we get back to discussing films on the Lost in the Movie podcast. I'm beginning a little bit of a mini-series that's going to climax with the new release of Dune, the Denis Villeneuve film, his adaptation coming out in early October. Leading up to that, I'm going to release uh, reviews of a couple of other of his films, including one that will be the first film... I'm actually reviewing just for this public podcast. It's not a patron podcast I record in the, in the past. It's, it's just for all of you. So uh, this is on the film Arrival, which I saw several years ago and really enjoyed and am looking forward to revisiting uh, very soon after this recording. Actually, when you're hearing this, I'll be watching this again and recording my episode for that. So here is 
uh, a taste of that to come from the trailer. Now that's a proper introduction. More objects have landed around the world. This is one of 12. 